0: On episode two of the ELB podcast, is more money in elections good or bad for our democracy? Would it be better to lift all limits on money in elections? What is the Supreme Court doing in the area of free speech? What of the new decision in Reed versus Town of Gilbert? And what of academics and their views of the First Amendment? I'll be joined by leading First Amendment litigator Floyd Abrams. So stay tuned for episode two of the ELB podcast. Welcome to episode two of the ELB podcast. I'm Rick Hassan of the University of California at Irvine and the Election Law Blog. I'm very pleased uh, that today uh, will be joined by Floyd Abrams. Floyd Abrams is a member of the executive committee of Cahill, Gordon and Reindel, a litigation group uh, based in New York. I think it's fair to say that he is the leading First Amendment lawyer in the country dealing with issues of free speech and expression. Uh, his roster of of clients uh, is quite illustrious, including many of the most important media companies in the, in the country. Among other arguments he's had before the Supreme Court, he represented Senator Mitch McConnell as amicus curiae in the case of Citizens United versus Federal Election Commission. Uh, He is also uh, very involved in promoting issues of free speech through a new uh, institute, the Abrams Institute, at the Yale Law School. Uh, Welcome, Floyd. Thank you for joining us.
1: It's a pleasure to be on.
0: Uh, I appreciate you taking the time. Uh, I want to start with Citizens United. You, you were a big proponent of the Citizens United decision, which freed corporate and union money in elections and led indirectly through the D.C. Circuit's Speech Now case and FEC rulings to today's era of super PACs. Also, thanks to the unexpected IRS Tea Party scandal, uh, it has become easier for money to get into the political process without disclosure through 501C4 and C6 groups that can spend money without disclosing their donors. I want to know what your assessment is of our post-Citizens United political system. Uh, has anything surprised you about the developments? And what do you make of the disclosure issue that uh, I think was not really anticipated by Justice Kennedy and his majority opinion in Citizens United?
1: Well, let me start with the disclosure uh, issue. Uh uh, I think that uh, I think you're right to say that Justice Kennedy uh did not anticipate uh the way disclosure would play out sort of on the ground i, I doubt very much that it would change his overview of uh what the First Amendment protects uh uh and what it doesn't uh, in this area uh my own view which I was prepared to give but uh, wasn't asked about in the rather brief Supreme Court argument that I had as representing uh, Senator McConnell uh, in uh, Citizens United, was that disclosure requirements are constitutional in general, uh, apart from areas uh, in which in an NAACP-like situation uh, that the mere fact of disclosure is so likely to have such a chilling effect on the ability uh, of, of of citizens to participate in the political process, uh, which I don't think uh, has occurred, and as a as a generality, uh, I don't think d- does occur, and more broadly, when it does occur. Uh, sometimes, uh, very often, uh, I, I think, you know, that's fine. I think that's, that's part of the system, too. The fact that the, the Federal Election Commission is itself uh, immobilized for political reasons uh, is not something that I think uh, the Constitution has to take into account. I mean, it, it would be a good thing, in my view, uh, if uh, there were more disclosure and... Citizens United holds that it, it would be constitutional uh, if that occurred. Uh, so that's sort of my, my starting point. Uh, the only other thing I'd say by way of introduction is that while the growth of super PACs has undoubtedly uh, affected uh, the way the game is played and who can play it, I do think we really have to be careful about uh, overstating uh, that impact. Uh, Jack Schaefer has a piece in Politico uh, today uh, uh, in which uh, he points out that uh, whether you're talking about Donald Trump or Bernie Sanders, who are the two sort of new entrants into the field, the money has nothing to do with their popularity or uh, the fact that they have had such a significant impact already uh, on the race. Now I'd add to that that uh, most of the money uh, has come from individuals uh, and certainly not from large corporations so far as we can tell with the lack of full disclosure. Uh, So I'd, I'd say all that by way of introduction and Perhaps we can talk more narrowly if you want to uh, talk about specific areas.
0: Well, I want to ask you about the kind of halfway house that we live in with our campaign finance system. Uh, the Congress passes a law, the Supreme Court strikes down part of it, uh, candidates and lawyers work around it. And so we're kind of in a in a halfway house uh, between uh, what the court wants and what Congress wants. Would you like to see the court go further and strike down contribution limits to candidates and parties as a First Amendment violation? Would that be, first, would that be uh, constitutionally required? And, and second, would that be a, a good state of affairs compared to where we are now?
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, for some time, I thought that the, the, the Buckley versus Vallejo creation of that halfway house was a sort of uh, acceptable on the ground uh, uh, compromise. I must say that that it is increasingly difficult uh I think from a first amendment perspective and and probably uh, a more on the ground perspective. To defend it, uh, that is to say it, it gets get, gets very hard to come up with the words uh, maybe I speak now too much as a litigator but but uh, the words to explain uh, why it is that contributions uh, are said to uh, be more inherently corrupting. Than uh, individual or, or corporate or union uh, expenditures, uh, because uh, obviously on, on the on the ground level they they approach and cross over each other for uh, uh, very often. So uh, while you know, it it seemed to me a tolerable judicial compromise in Buckley simply because such compromises are sometimes needed to have five votes uh or to uh, to start down a, a a new road uh even a road which uh, is is uh, tread upon in the name of the first amendment that uh it 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 really does get more difficult to to defend the the current halfway system uh, and so one is pushed uh, I would say, sort of logically, either to saying uh, all or nothing at all, or, or more or less, Congress can do just about whatever it wants, subject to some reasonableness standard uh, uh, on the one side, or this is just not an area that Congress can enter into, short of the sort of quid pro quo corruption that the court has now defined as being the only sort of corruption that the system can address.
0: So would you be troubled as a voter uh, by someone being able to make a million dollar or a five million dollar contribution to someone running for Congress or for the city council of uh, New York City?
1: Well, number one, I'd really like to know about it. And that's one of the reasons that I think that uh, that disclosure <coughs> excuse me, is not only... Uh, constitutional, uh, but uh, but ad, but advisable. Um, but uh, you know, as as to whether, that, let me put it this, this, this way: a, a, an expenditure. Take the somewhat easier case from my perspective first. An expenditure of one million or five million dollars uh, on a campaign, and we had the equivalent of that in the recent mayoral election in New York, lower sums, but, but sums enough to really affect the race uh, made by people who were uh, against having horse-driven carriages in Central Park in New York. They put enough money in early enough uh, in the campaign as, as to help a lot in getting the name and the name recognition of the person who became uh, our mayor. Is that a bad thing? I, I don't think so. Uh, I, I, I would think it's it's a lot better, and from any notion of uh, democratic theory, I'd, I'd sure like to know uh, who the uh, who the people are who are making the uh, the expenditures and not simply phony names of organizations. on a contribution level, again as I said a moment ago, that gets pretty close to me. It's not that far away from expenditures. Uh, I can, uh, you know, I take the point, uh, Justice Scalia had asked me a friendly question in the argument I did in the McConnell case, although he asked it with a touch of sarcasm in his voice. uh, Are contributions something that, that are, by their nature, lead to more loyalty by the recipient than expenditures uh, on the side, as it were, uh, that you favor. Uh, so, uh, look, I, I find this, a, this is a, a difficult uh, area. That said, it is also an area that I think is suffused with First Amendment uh, values and, and, and the need to, to take uh, account on a very, very real basis of, uh, of First Amendment interest. This is a way... Uh, that people participate in the political system and engage in speech. Uh, uh, I mean, often, generally, what we're talking about is is money which allows advertisements or other sorts of speech about who to elect. And that's the sort of thing which I would say, and the slim majority on the Supreme Court continues to say, is, is very much at the heart of the First Amendment.
0: I have one more question on Citizens United before I want to move more broadly to the Supreme Court's treatment of speech. Uh, and it's a question you may have anticipated. You, you and I have long debated the question of foreign money in U.S. elections. Thanks to the Supreme Court's summary affirmance in a case after Citizens United, a case called Blumen v. FEC, it remains constitutional for the government to totally bar independent expenditures by non-U.S. citizens. You've defended this ruling by saying that Foreign spending is different, and I was hoping you could take a moment and just expand on what you see the salient differences are between, say, a corporation's free speech rights, a corporation which doesn't exist as a, as a human being, and foreign individuals' free speech rights, human beings but without uh, citizenship. What justifies the First Amendment treatment, uh, the difference in First Amendment treatment? Well,
1: basically, that foreign foreigners owe no allegiance to this country uh, uh, by, by their nature. Um, uh, an American corporation, a corporation, and, and this gets complicated in the world we live in now. But, 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 viewing this broadly, an American corporation is basically run by people who, at least one would expect, would have a sense of, of loyalty uh, to the country. It's a distinction, for example, that I make between Julian Assange and Edward Snowden. Uh, when I think of uh their uh, uh activities uh, um, I think that the the fact that Assange in no way owes a body of loyalty to the country uh is something that we we have to take account of uh as as we judges behavior and as we judge the uh, degree of uh, concern we might have uh, as to his behavior. Now obviously you know, people have different senses of loyalties and people who work for or run corporations have a different sense of loyalty. Now in the case that you mentioned sure you're talking about Canadians who live in the US uh, you know how different are they than, than Americans uh, who live here, but but approaching it on a broad level, I, I think that is that that is the basic distinction. We do treat in a number of situations citizens different from foreigners, uh, and uh, we uh, we we do the obverse of that as well, and that's what we're doing in this area.
0: Now, one of the key arguments made by the majority in Citizens United. Uh, was that the corporate limits were unconstitutional because they singled out corporate press like the New York Times or Fox News for special treatment, not subject to the limits of uh, on expenditures that existed before. The court says the press gets no constitutional protection. And I'm wondering if you think the court got that part of its decision right. What does that do for other parts of press laws, such as press shield laws? Are they now uh, subject to constitutional challenge? Uh,
1: I think the court was right to uh, uh, conclude that press-only exemptions uh, from laws uh, such as these uh, are, are troubling, maybe unconstitutional, uh, in terms of the favoritism, one could say on the one side, but more important, uh, on the disparate treatment of uh, of entities that want to affect that choose to affect uh, that play a role in affecting uh, the uh, the behavior of government officials uh, and the like uh, so the the question of of how far beyond campaign finance that principle will apply uh, is is one which is not going to be easy i don't think it is likely to affect. The confidential source uh, area, as such, because I think that the, the one can draw a distinction in terms of what the role uh, of, of journalists uh, is or is supposed to be for, in terms of gathering news and the like. But at the at the delivery end, the notion of what can be said, uh, I, I I don't think that uh, we can justify carving out some entities uh, as being particularly favored and others not in terms of what they can say uh, uh, and the like. That Look, that's been an issue that's been around for a long time. I mean, I when I was working on the Pentagon Papers case, it, it occurred to me from the very beginning that if Daniel Ellsberg had gotten up in Central Park in New York, and started to read from the Pentagon Papers, he likely would have been arrested, they would have been seized, and the case would have been lost, any case in which he defended on First Amendment grounds, and yet, even as a prior restraint case. Uh, and the New York Times won. Well, uh, uh, that was more a, a judgment, I still have the same judgment, uh, as to what would likely happen. But I don't think one can really justify saying that the, that, the, that the press gets more or different protections about their ability to speak, as it were, than, uh, than individuals or other corporations.
0: I want to turn to the court's decision last term in Reed versus Town of Gilbert, in which the court held that a local government's rules concerning which types of Road signs could be posted, is a content based restriction of speech, uh, which the court said was subject to strict scrutiny. Adam Liptak had a recent column in the New York Times a few weeks ago uh, suggesting that Gilbert is a blockbuster case with perhaps all kinds of unintended consequences, quoting Robert Post, the dean of the Yale Law School, as saying the court cannot be serious about applying strict scrutiny and content-based, uh, the rules for content-based restrictions across the board, and quoting you as defending uh, the decision. Could you expand a bit more on your thinking about the case, on, and, sure. and also on whether or not you think it is going to, for good or bad, is going to mark a major change across First Amendment doctrine, especially as it comes to uh, government speech or speech restrictions?
1: Well, first, I do think uh, that uh, it will lead to a, a major change. I... Uh, uh, for, for better or worse, uh, I think the law is now uh, established uh, because of the Reed case that uh, content uh, distinctions are by their nature presumptively unconstitutional when they're imposed by the state and that uh, uh, to the extent that all one has to do is to look at a statute to see if it's content-based, that that makes it content-based. So, so long as it's content-based on its face, it will be treated as content-based and thus presumptively unconstitutional. That's a big case, and, and uh, you know, I think it, uh, it follows the arguments that the Supreme Court had uh, just a few years earlier in the case involving the compounding of drugs, uh, you know, where the court's struck down by the same six to three vote, uh, uh, a, uh, a law which, which significantly limited commercial speech, as this one also limits commercial speech. I think one of the most important uh, uh, lessons of this case is how close our law is becoming with respect to uh, commercial speech uh, uh, as it is in political speech. And I think we are moving in that direction. I don't know that I would have moved all the way there, but I think that's, uh, that's where we're going. Uh, and I think that, that this case uh, uh, tells us that. So we're, we're not only going to have an expanded version of what's content-based with all the consequences of that, but it's likely to apply uh, as well Uh, in in a large number of commercial speech contexts, which makes it, if anything, uh, even more of a blockbuster uh, decision. Uh, Now, one consequence, and Adam Liptak's article uh, sort of suggested that, uh, and uh, Justice Breyer's uh, concurring opinion in Reed and dissenting opinion, uh, in in the earlier case I've, I've adverted to, Makes the same argument. One consequence of that may be that strict scrutiny becomes less strict as we apply it. That 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 the, that the that the real impact may be that the court will be unwilling to say that this law or that law is unconstitutional, even when it is uh, sort of deeply rooted. Uh, historically based on some sort of need or another as rationally decided by, by, by Congress. And, you know, and I, th- I think that uh, uh, one, one of the arguments against this expansion of what sort of speech receives strict scrutiny is, as Justice Breyer uh, uh, warned, uh, that strict scrutiny may be less strict uh, than it's been in the past, but nonetheless, taken as a whole, it, it, it's a very important uh, ruling, and I think I think the people who wrote it meant it. I mean, I don't think I don't think it was an error of writing of some sort. Uh, 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 in, in an earlier case, the court has simply used the very loose word of heightened scrutiny. No one knows what that means. Uh, and, it, you know, it's not part of the normal bit of nomenclature that we, that we apply uh, in determining what sort of scrutiny is applied. But strict scrutiny is something we thought we've understood. Uh, and while, as I suggested earlier, uh, strict scrutiny may wind up being less strict than before, may not be as, as uh, fatal uh, in almost all cases as it's been before, Nonetheless, uh, the impact uh, of this ruling, I believe, is going to be really major uh, and that it will lead. It's already led to some statutes, a panhandling statute in one state, uh, being held unconstitutional simply because it it couldn't pass uh, a a strict scrutiny uh, regime of review. So I think it'll be around for for some time, how it's interpreted, whether at least around the edges, uh, it it is cut back. We'll just have to wait and see.
0: I wonder if we got a little preview of what the new strict scrutiny might look like in the williams Lee case, which was a case involving uh, whether judicial candidates could personally solicit campaign contributions in Florida, where you had Chief Justice Roberts joining with the four more liberal members of the court in saying that, um, yes it's strict scrutiny but the state has a compelling interest and, and he was uh, I think really hammered by both Justice Scalia and Justice Kennedy on his application yeah. of strict scrutiny.
1: I think that's a very good example of, uh, of I mean it's, it's one of the I think what, only one of two cases in recent years in which something has been held to pass uh, uh, strict scrutiny uh, um, and and uh, I think you're right that that, that may give us you know, it may be that the Chief Justice at least believes that uh, there's enough uh, lee- leeway there uh, to find that strict scrutiny uh, has been met. The other case is the, is, is the Holder case <coughs> of a few years earlier. Uh, so that, that may be a direction uh, that, that we go in. And, uh, you know, we could be talking five years from now uh i mean people like me could could be talking at least saying you know i'd rather have the old strict scrutiny uh, uh if the, if the price of uh cases like reed which impose it on a much more across the board basis uh is that strict scrutiny is not at all as strict as it was that something we'll just we'll just have to see
0: Well, I want to conclude by turning to the issue of the First Amendment and academia. Uh, I had the honor of attending a Freedom of Expression conference at Yale this past uh, spring, sponsored by the Abrams Institute, which you generously support. And you were so gracious when I presented a part of my book, uh, Plutocrats United, which directly takes issue with you and your position on campaign financing. Uh, But it struck me as I was sitting through the conference that most of the other scholars who were attending this conference were also quite critical of broad readings of the First Amendment speech provisions. And I'm wondering, do you think that something's changed in academia? If so, what do you attribute it to? And do you think that the First Amendment runs the danger of becoming yet another issue which divides the country on partisan lines?
1: Uh, Yes and yes. Uh, I think that uh, the, uh, look, I think one of the most monumental things that's happening on the US Supreme Court uh is that the Conservatives are more often than not uh using the First Amendment or applying it in a more aggressive way uh than 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 the Liberals uh, call them that uh, are are doing so. Uh a part of it is just what the issues are. Uh I'm sorry to say, but Maybe one shouldn't be naive about this, that an awful lot of decision making uh, people, whether they're scholars or not, about what speech should be protected uh, uh, comes not uh, from their judgment about speech. But what the topic happens to be, uh, that protests around abortion clinics are viewed by some uh, on the left uh, as more easily uh, subject to restriction than would be the case if there were protests around factories uh, by by unions. Uh, so I, I do think that you know, scholars tend to be more liberal than not, more left of center than not. And I have to say that I think that this has come to affect their uh, judgment uh, about the First Amendment uh, and about when it applies and about, what it means—the uh, more orthodox First Amendment view—that it is a limitation on the government was written, put in the Constitution, included in the Bill of Rights, uh, uh, for for that reason that it would we wouldn't have a First Amendment if the if, if the sense had not been uh, by the framers that we needed to make it clear that there were actions with respect to speech, religion, assembly, uh, uh, and the press, maybe the press most of all, that the government could not take. Uh, the framers thought about other benefits of free speech. But, the, but in my view, and I, I'm writing about this now, <coughs> excuse me, in my view, the purpose, the reason we have uh, uh, a Bill of Rights, And the reason certainly we have a First Amendment uh, is to limit the role of the government. And if that is so, uh, then I think that uh, academics are uh, often erring uh, in their, uh, uh, by allowing their political social views about what sorts of speech really serve the public or even harm the public. Uh, to play much too great a role, uh, uh, a sort of analysis they would not engage in if they were more comfortable with the speech itself.
0: Well, this has been a fascinating discussion. Uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me today. Uh,
1: And I wish you well uh, in, in this whole series that you're embarked in.
0: Thank you so much. The ELB podcast is supported by the University of California at Irvine School of Law but I am solely responsible for its content. The technical producer of the ELB podcast is Jared Hassenkline. The theme music is the composition Jazz by the band BeatFN, used under Creative Commons license. Join us next time for the ELB podcast. I'm Rick Hassen. Goodbye.